We're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. If you're not there, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I have a question for you. If you're going to ordain the church to reach billions of people in hundreds of countries, in millions of locations, how would you do it? In other words, if you were the Lord, what model of church leadership would you use? You know, historically in the West, uh, there's been a model that has been used, and we're very familiar with it. That is the uh, the pastor as a primary caregiver. Uh, in other words, if you need to get married, call the pastor. You have a funeral, call the pastor. Someone's sick, call the pastor. You have a complaint, call the pastor. You get the idea, right? That that's the the the. The, if you need a service to dispense, a spiritual service, then you call the pastor. The weakness with this model is that it creates a culture where people become dependent upon the pastor for things and it encourages people to focus more on themselves and their needs rather than the needs of the kingdom and what God would require of them. In the 1970s and 80s, though, there was a there was a, a dramatic shift in the philosophy of pastoral ministry, and two models of pastoral ministry became dominant in in um, I should say certain sized churches at that time. That one was the pastor as CEO. This is the the pastor's chief executive officer. He's the one, he casts the vision. He rallies the troops. He motivates the people to carry on the new vision in a changed and and healthy environment. Everything flows from his desk and from, from his personality, so to speak. But there are some problems with this one. First, it might lead people to follow a charismatic personality rather than biblical principles. Well, I really like that guy, so I'm going to follow him. He makes me laugh, or, or I, I like the, the, the big goals that he has. Secondly, though, the, the CEO model also focuses on the needs of the local church to the exclusion of the, the global church. And what I mean is that when you have a CEO as pastor, the goal, if you didn't know this, of this model is for the church to become a mega church. By the way, we throw that term around, but there is actually a definition if you want to know what it is. Those that are in church that study churches and stuff. A mega church is any church over 2,000 in regular attendance. That's, that's a mega church in case you're wondering. Um, the, the, the emphasis is to build a, a, a megachurch. Another model, closely related, came about the same time, is the pastor as entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is this is a guy who's, who's highly innovative. He's, he's creative. He's an ideas person to lead the church. And, and everybody loves him because he's at the very, He's the point of the spear when it comes to the, the, the creative things and the new fads that come in the church and the new ideas. The, this kind of church and this kind of person typically wants the, the church to be known for something. They're, they're branded. This is a, a branding of the church, so to speak. But the Bible, I don't know if you knew this or not, the Bible never puts forth a, a formal model of, of church leadership. 
As a matter of fact, I read a book last year about, it was called The Biblical Model of Church Leadership. And in the very, in the introduction, the pastor said, um, I have a real problem with this title. And it begins with biblical leadership and the. And basically he said that there is no one biblical model for leadership. However, what we find in scripture is that God's people are sheep and therefore he appoints shepherds to shepherd a sheep. And that's what you find in Scripture. Words are, are very important. So when we get into our passage today and we start talking about uh, pastors and shepherds, I want you to notice the words, particularly in verse number one. Look at what he says. And the very first word jumps out. In the, in the English Standard Version from which I preach, the first word of verse number one is the word so. Most other English versions use the word therefore. Now, when you see that word, you know that that's a connector, right? It's connecting something. So what is he doing? Well, Peter just got done talking about the uh, persecution that is going to come their way because they are followers of God and how that they need to remain faithful. And he's connecting that idea with the fact that in order in these dangerous times for the sheep not to falter, the sheep not to to fail for the sheep not to be in danger, God has to has ordained strong, godly, effective shepherds to guide those sheep. The toughest times demand the best shepherds. And so Peter moves wonderfully from the difficulty believers are experiencing to reveal God's will for the men who must lead them through that difficulty. Churches need shepherds, not CEOs. In these verses, he gives a wonderful sketch of what an elder should be. Who, what should you expect out of the elders that lead the church? Well, number one, I want you to notice the call. First of all, look at verse number one. So I exhort the elders among you. The first thing that we see is the word exhort. And that's an urging. He says, I urge or I appeal, I exhort the elders. Now, who are they? Elders, that word started to mean the older people in the community. In in Israel, that term was very dominant. And the elders in the city were always the older men. These are men with life experience. And in the church, in the New Testament, it became people who were spiritual overseers, uh, spiritual teachers and leaders, the pastors of the church. There are three terms in the New Testament that are used interchangeably. Elders, um, overseers, and and bishops, or elders, pastor, bishop, if you want to use it that way. And these three terms are used interchangeably. Elder, bishop is sometimes translated overseer. Pastor is talking about shepherding, pastoral. And they're all used interchangeably in Acts chapter 20 and other places in the New Testament. But I want you to notice in particular that he says the word, I exhort elders. Did you know that every time Paul writes to a church, to the elders. It's always elders, plural, in a church. Um, Peter now is following suit, and he's saying, I urge the elders. There's a plurality of elders. And so they're mature men 
who have the office in which they feed and lead. And it's very important that we have a plurality of mature men. I just want to give you a brief suggestion why this is. And this list is not original with me. It comes from a, uh, some writings on elders by John MacArthur. I want to show you why plurality of elders is important. It gives protections. Number one, it protects the church against error. Secondly, it protects against imbalanced ministry. So think about this. You get one man. He may not have one person does not have full theological understanding. It's impossible. But a group of godly men round out theological understanding, would they not? And so it protects against error and it protects against imbalance because we all have personality traits that are different. We all have desires that are different. And when you get a group together of men praying, walking with God, seeking the Lord's direction, you're going to get a more well-rounded ministry than you would if it's just one guy. Multiple men can use their gifts to balance a ministry. One man doesn't have all the gifts. It protects against undue elevation of, of one man. And we see this over and over where prominent men get elevated and uh, pride creeps in and, and problems happen. And then finally, it protects against evil dominance by bullies by evil men. And we've seen that as well. So many churches, people get hurt. They go to a church where where it's the one pastor and he's a domineering type person. He ends up he ends up bullying the sheep rather than leading the sheep. And so plurality of elders is a protection against that. We and I, I'm saying this I, I want to say two things. We have a lot of new people here in, that have come since I've come. Just in case you're wondering, I'm new here. I've only been here about ten months, and um, so I'm I'm learning things just as much as you are. But we at Providence Bible Church, if you're new here, we have a plurality of elders. I'm I'm one of five. I, I'm not the pastor, and everybody else is down here. I'm first among equals, and there are five of us that are elders in the church. I just happen to be the one that stands up every Sunday and preaches. Okay, I love that because I've been in churches where there's the one pastor, and for that one pastor, if he's not the CEO model. It is exhausting. The pastor is service provider. It can wear you out. I had a conversation this week with a pastor. He looked at me and he said, Jared, I've worked 26 straight days without a day off. He's a pastor as service provider type. And he said, I'm exhausted. He said, somebody was in the hospital the other day and I was too tired to even care. I've been there before. And I'm sure some of you have been there before in your life. I am so thankful for Providence Bible Church that they set up the church government in such a way that we're led. We're not ruled. We're led by a group of men. I love this church. Um, I've been I've been to the other churches and uh, we have we, we have many things going on here at church and there's no way that I can minister to everybody here. And I don't have to because we have a plurality of elders. Isn't that wonderful? My and we all have different jobs. You know what my job is? In case you were wondering, they, this is what they set forth as my uh, responsibility as pastor. So this is what you should expect out of me. Ready? Number one, pray. Nothing gets done without prayer. Is that not correct? 
prayer is the means through which God acts in His church. And so they want me to pray. Number two, they want me to study the Bible to teach and oversee the teaching of this church. Not do all the teaching, oversee it. And number three, as, as a shepherd, to give direction to the church. Protection and those sort of things. I love that. I love that I don't have to go to all the meetings and, and wear five hats. I've got one. And it's still a big responsibility. Our five elders have differing gifts. And so I'm not expected to be everything and do everything. And frankly, there are men that can do many of these things better than me. Plus, we have over 450 regular attenders that that come through our church. And it's impossible for one man to know them all, to minister to them all. And so part of my calling as a shepherd here is to just oversee a lot of the ministry at Providence Bible Church. I am. I love that about this church. Thank you so much for the way that you have have set this up. This is wonderful. Um, I appreciate it. Number two, what we see is the command in these passages. Look at verses one and two again. And I'm gonna I'm gonna skip. If how many? No, I'm not gonna ask how many love English because any English teachers here might cry. But. Um, <laughs> But if you understand English, when you, if you run into a really complicated sentence, most of you know that you can cut out what's between commas, right? So let's do that so you see the, the crux of the command in verses 1 and 2. Look at it. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. That's verse number 2. Verse number 1, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the heart of the command. Peter is talking to the elders, and he's talking about their shepherding the flock of God. And, and so that, that, that's the primary thing that we're to do. We're to shepherd. And what is the primary responsibility of a shepherd? Now, you live in Virginia. There's plenty of rain. But if you go to Israel... Where Peter is from, there's not that much rain. As a matter of fact, there's so little grass, they, they have a shepherding season. I'm going to tell you how it works. They, they start raising their sheep in the fall and go all the way to Passover time, and then they get rid of their flocks. And they keep a couple around, then they get another flock in the fall, and they do the same thing over because they, in the wintertime, during the rainy season, they have to lead the sheep to where they can be fed because there's so little grass. There's so few um, sources of food for the sheep. We don't have that problem here. But an elder's, a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the sheep. And so you're familiar with 1 Timothy chapter number 3, Titus chapter number 1, where there are the, the list of qualifications for elders. Did you know there's only one skill set there? There's only one. The one skill set is able to teach. Everything else on those lists of elders is character. God did not call his shepherds to be CEOs. He didn't call them to be creative. He didn't call them to be gifted organizers. He didn't call them to be visionaries. He called them to be men of the word who fed the flock from the word of God. That's our primary responsibility. In John 21, 
And I talked about this when we began First Peter some months ago in John 21, where where Jesus is on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and and Peter and the men they've been out fishing, and they, they and remember Jesus calls out to them, and and they catch this big catch of fish. Peter uh, throws his coat on, jumps in the water, and swims ashore, and he, and Jesus has got breakfast for him, fish for breakfast. You remember that? And after the meal. What does Jesus do? Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And of course, he says three times, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, or feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The primary responsibility of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. The elder's job is to give a nourishing meal, not a little snack. All of our elders should be skilled teachers. Now, when I say this, let me let me phrase this in such a way. When you think teacher, you think of somebody who formally stands up in front of people and gives them the Word of God, right? Now, I don't believe that everybody's gifted that way. But our elders should be gifted enough that they can apply the Word of God to the lives of somebody when it's one-on-one or maybe one-on-two or something like that. You see what I'm talking about? They can teach the Word to their children. They can teach the Word to other men as they sit down with them and have coffee with them or whatever. But in a church this size, neither me nor the rest of the elder board can adequately feed everybody. And so, therefore, Peter adds this little Phrase. Look at what he says in verse number two. Shepherd the flock that is among you. And then he says this. Exercising oversight. Now the root word of that word oversight is where we get the word scope. And so the idea is that we have a scope over. So we are to feed the flock of God and we are to have oversight. We are to scope out and look at all the teaching, not teach everybody ourselves. The idea that the noun is used uh, five times as as overseer and sometimes translated bishop. The verb here means to take charge for the primary purpose of feeding. And so take charge of them for the primary purpose of, of feeding the flock. The elders are to watch over what is being taught in the church. Now, why is this important? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why does your pastor emphasize that you need to be in God's Word? Why do we emphasize that you need to be taught the Word of God, sound doctrine and deeply? The answer is weak sheep get taken by wolves. And the only prevention against wolves is to have well-fed sheep that can keep up with the rest of the flock. The church today, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about the church in general, is just inundated with shallow, ear-tickling teaching that does nothing to prevent people from being led astray by false teaching. It is unbelievable the teaching that genuine Christians get led astray by. Literally unbiblical teaching. If they just knew their Bibles and they had a sound teacher, they wouldn't be led astray by this, by whatever popular teaching it is. And so therefore, pastors, elders need to be teaching 
against false doctrine because Satan constantly attacks the church through false doctrine. Well, what's the manner? We see the call. We see the command. What's the manner of their teaching? Look at verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. This is a very fascinating way. This is a Hebrew manner of teaching. I want to show you what it is in just a minute. Uh, they're couplets, and, and they're 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 comparing each other and he gives three things about the manner not under compulsion but willingly not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock that's the manner there's a there's a fourth one that's implied in verse number one and i want to deal with that first if you go back to verse number one let's read the whole verse together and I'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Are you ready? He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now stop right there. Who wrote this? Peter. Why didn't he say, I exhort you, the elders among you, as the apostle? What is he doing? What is Peter showing? Peter is showing remarkable humility in, in his encouraging the elders. He's, he's being humble. He doesn't pull the apostle card. Hey, I'm the one that saw Jesus. Hey, I was one of the three. I was there at Mount Transfiguration. You listen to me, you people, because I'm the apostle. Rather, he says, I exhort you elders as a fellow elder among you. There's, there's a certain bout of humility. Humility goes with the job. He didn't say, as pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the first church in Jerusalem, he didn't even say, as pastor of the first megachurch, because by the way, by definition, 3,000 people makes it a megachurch, and in just a couple of verses later, you see it's 5,000. He didn't say, as pastor of the fastest growing church in the, air, in the world. He didn't say any of that. He humbly um, told them, I'm in this with you as well. The reason is that God doesn't call CEOs or entrepreneurs is that he builds the church. A pastor can have the most winsome personality, the most creative ministry, be a master planner. But if that is where he puts his reliance, then he gets the glory and not God. By being a shepherd... It's a daily admission that it is God that builds this church and we're just leading them to where they can be fed. Do you, I, I know I've said this before, but I want to say it one more time. I don't, I don't know if you understand the inadequacy a man feels who knows what is at stake when he stands up and preaches the Word of God. I told Heather this morning uh, when we were getting ready to leave, I, I said, I said, there, my heart has just been kind of in knots for yesterday and today. I keep thinking to myself, there's something else I need to do. There's something else I need to do. And that's not, and I knew that that was a wrong uh, thought or feeling in my heart that what I needed to do was put my reliance upon God. Because it really doesn't matter how good my voice is, how, how well I present the gospel, how well I present the truth, but if I do it accurately and pleasing to the God, He does all the work. 
And so there's an inadequacy. There's an admission every Sunday morning in my heart to the Lord. I am nothing, God. You are everything. And unless you come to this church and you work this morning, all I've just wasted 300 hours of people's time collectively. I seriously pray that because it's the truth. God builds His church. Amen? Isn't that a blessing? So there's a humility. But notice the couplets with me. Not under compulsion, but willingly. So an elder must lead the sheep willingly. A pastor shouldn't be ministering because he's made to. He shouldn't be forced to do his work. If you're not motivated by the Spirit of God, if the urgency of the task doesn't motivate you, then you have a real problem as a pastor, as an elder. Don't be lazy in ministry. Laziness is a great temptation in the ministry. Did you know that? There's this, in the old days, when I first was a minister, there's these things called books. And now there's this thing called the Internet. And back when I first started ministry, you could buy books, 52 sermons. And now all you got to do is go on the Internet. You can download a sermon if you want. By the way, I don't do that. I might joke about it, but I don't do that. There are a lot of men running around from meeting to meeting to meeting, appearing to get things done. They come in on a Saturday night, they download a sermon from a website, and they give a shallow sermon that tickles people's ear. That is laziness in ministry. God called us to be in the Word, understanding the Word, and worshiping Him so that the overflow of what we learn can be presented on a Sunday morning. There's, a, there's another thing. They need to do their job eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not only is laziness a problem in the ministry, but notice something else. Money can be a problem. He says not for shameful gain. Money must never be a motive. Now, according to 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it is right to pay a pastor to pay them well, but that should not be the focus of the pastor's life. That shouldn't be his motive. When people ask me how much I charge for something, like weddings or funerals, etc., I just tell them I don't charge. I don't do it for money. I'm not in this for money. And so a pastor should not be in it for shameful gain. And we, all, we have all seen the stories about pastors who have been embezzling money or pastors who, who control the money and, and use it for personal uh, gain or whatever. And, and that is terrible. And by the way, if you're new here, let me tell you, it is impossible. Our financial controls, the people who count the money don't write the checks. And the person that writes the check has no access to the money. And the person that writes the check doesn't sign the check because somebody else signs the check. And I don't see any of it. So, so we do a real good job with our, our, um, with our financial controls. I don't see how anybody could, could be dishonest with the money here because we do such a good job with that. But laziness is a problem. And uh, money can be a problem in the ministry. There's another problem. And that is the third couplet. Not domineering over the, those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. A third problem in pastoral ministry that you commonly see is somebody who wants to be domineering. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be authoritarian. He, he want, it's his way or the highway. 
and and they have this desire for for for, for control and for power. But if you if you look at how Jesus is described, and by the way, in John chapter 10, he said that he's the good shepherd. Jesus is described as being gentle, isn't he? He's described as being loving and merciful and kind. And so his shepherds ought to be the same kind of, of person. Uh, the, an article that I saw months ago that I have, I have filed away that I want to share a little bit with you. It's, it's entitled, How Do Churches End Up with Domineering Bullies for Pastors? And what the author notes is that more and more in the Western church, they're having problems with domineering pastors, with authoritarian pastors. And he goes on to say that there are two models that are taking over churches in the West. In, in, in America, it's the CEO model pastor in England, and this guy's English, he says it's the pastor as general. He's going to rally the troops to go fight the war, the spiritual battle. And so the CEO pastor and the pastor's general, and he notes that um, the problem is getting worse and worse, and he makes this observation. He says, it is common in American churches to borrow leadership wisdom from the business world. The pastor is a CEO. His role is, is to bring success often and especially measured by numerical terms. The church needs to be, grow in membership and, and, and giving. He goes on to describe that for a while. And then he says something else. He goes on to say in a later paragraph, there is obviously much to be learned from both successful CEOs and also great generals. But both models can quickly become toxic. When either becomes their primary model for Christian leadership, is it any wonder that domineering pastors result... The pastor of CEO approach might foster entrepreneurialism and risk-taking, but it really becomes results-oriented. And that's the kind of society that we live in, results-oriented. We hired you to grow our church. Um, maybe, maybe we look at it and say, well, this guy's not meeting my needs. This guy's not helping my children out or whatever the case is. Becomes results-oriented. I don't know what happened to that church ever since he came. Their attendance has done a nosedive or, or whatever the case is. And so his conclusion, I want to show you the conclusion he, he said. He said this, being domineering is catastrophic for the flock. It seems effective in the short term. It gets things done but it can be disastrous in the long term. And so Peter says that the pastor does not domineer over the flock, but rather he leads by what? Example. Lead by example. Lead by example. And that is why I mentioned earlier that the qualifications of elders, all of them but one, are character-driven. There is no room in Elder ministry for somebody with poor character. No room whatsoever because it's all a character-driven process. I want to show you the motive. Verse number 4. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. The designation of Jesus as the chief shepherd reminds the elders that they're fundamentally 
um, servants and not autocrats. Their positions of leadership are a responsibility, not a privilege by which they can be lazy or greedy or be a petty tyrant. None of these fit into to it. We are motivated by the fact that when the chief shepherd appears, if we're faithful in what God has called us to do, we will receive a crown of glory. Why would I want temporary riches or temporary authority when I can have eternal glory? It's directly proportionate to my faithfulness and service here. It doesn't, God doesn't look at my entrepreneurial savvy or my creative ability or even the size of my flock. God looks at my faithfulness. He looks at our elders' faithfulness. And I dare say, He looks at your faithfulness and you say, what do I mean? I want to talk to the men for a minute. Men, if there are these little critters running around your house that most people call children. (laughs) And women, if there are these little beings that call you mom, then this passage is for you because they're your sheep. Dads, men, let me say straight up, the whole household is your flock, including your wife. But I want to talk particularly to the men. You are charged with leadership in the home. Everyone in your household is your flock. And I want to encourage you by asking you a question. How are you shepherding your flock in your house? I want to encourage you. Be diligent in discipling those little souls and don't be lazy. Eagerly fulfill your responsibility to lead in Christ's likeness. Don't pass off your responsibility to the church, to the Christian school, or even to your wife. You be the one that's leading their spiritual lives. You be the one that's teaching them. You, you be the one that's, that's uh, leading by example and not being a domineering tyrant in your household, your way or the highway. Do you follow Christ by being gentle and loving and humble in your leadership in the home? Become more like Christ. Because far more will be caught by your example than taught by your words. And I'm saying that because oh, twice that I can remember, Paul says that one of the things that an elder has to do is lead his household well. And if you can't lead those little souls and that wife that God gave you and do it in a Christ-like manner, how can you lead his church? Moms, are you gentle and loving with the children that God has entrusted you with? How's your character? How are you doing leading by example? What a wonderful passage. This passage is not for just a select group of people. This is for the whole church. We have so many children here at Providence Bible Church. And I, I pray for every family. And as I come to... The, the, the children in the family, I always pray two things for them. Number one, I pray that God will save them. I call their names by, I call them by name. And number two, I pray that God will call them into the ministry. 
And when I say that, I don't mean full-time ministry necessarily, but that there'll be another generation who grows up to please God, to love Him with all their heart, soul, and might because they saw parents who love God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their might. Tremendous passage that all of us can learn from. When the chief shepherd appears, my prayer is parents, grandparents, elders, deacons. My prayer is that you will receive a crown of glory for the way that you shepherded your flock, whatever flock that God gave you. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful little passage. In a sense, it's so simple because you do all the work. We don't have to feel pressure to be on the cutting edge of any kind of of church fad. We don't feel the pressure to be coming up with a vision, to be the ideas person, to, to be... The, the service provider who's all things to all people, that's Christ's job, not ours. We thank you, Lord, that you just call us to lead by example, and you'll do the work in people's hearts, sharing the Word of God because that's how people change. And so, Lord, as I said it, I'm praying now, will you fill this church with parents and grandparents and elders and deacons and teachers and, and uh, people who are being faithful, loving you, and they'll receive a crown of glory when they get to heaven. In Christ's name, amen.